eventually will finish it. And as Brother Chuck mentioned, our plan is thereafter to go into Jeremiah. Previous to it, however, we thought we would dip back into the Psalms for a spell. Uh, and we decided to take requests. So if there are any Psalms, we'll just do a few, that you have particular interest in us studying, uh, let us know. You can call, you can send an email. Uh, one of our class members already did, so uh, she asked for Psalm 63, and so we will do Psalm 63. We covered the first 30, so those are off limits. Uh, we've already covered those. So any of the Psalms after 30 that you might be interested in, we did not even do it in order. And this is what we'll do in between books. We'll do a few Psalms here and there. We will not stay in Psalms as long as we did the first time. That was a little too grueling an experience. We'll just do a few, and then we'll start Jeremiah. We don't know the starting date uh, because we're not sure how long still we'll be in Second Peter. But just to give you a little heads up, that's what we're going to do. And uh, so let us know what your preference is in the Psalms, if you have any interest whatsoever. So, uh, you know, you talk to people about God from time to time, and typically you hear certain frequently repeated um, criticisms of God himself. For instance, you've heard this one quite a bit, I'm sure. If God is good, as you claim the Bible claims, then how do we explain all that which is bad? For instance, how do we reconcile the devastation in a place like Haiti with the goodness of God? It's called the problem of suffering and evil. It's a problem because it exists, and it's a little incompatible, some would say, with the claim that God is good. So much of what is happening is bad how do I square that with the goodness of God? So you, you hear that one a lot. Do you hear any other criticisms, stumbling blocks, objections uh, to the character of God? There's one in particular I'm kind of going after, and uh, let's see if we can eventually get there. What else do people object to when you talk to them? Yeah, Bill? Well, Kina, that, that's along the lines of what, of what we said. Why do bad things happen to good people? So that's, that's the problem of, of evil. That's a frequently occurring one. Yes? When there's, in the Old Testament, when God smites and kills so many in the scriptures, people say, well, how, how do one be associated with God when you do that? So, so here's what our brother said. In the Old Testament, uh, you know, we have a record of God... Uh, slaying so many people, and one would say, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. Now, that's getting close to where I'm going. Yes, sir? Uh, how would a loving God send anyone to hell? Now, that's it. How would a loving God send anyone to hell? Do you realize how politically incorrect the notion of hell is today? I remember years ago when we used to be in the movie theaters. Were any of you there in the, in the movie theater days? Remember those days? We were just kids then. We had dark hair. and <sighs> um, It was kind of fun in the movie theaters. Uh, I, re I remember oftentimes even in the early classes, people would uh, come in with bags of popcorn because the concessions, so of you remember? One day, I smelled something in one of the... This has nothing to do with the lesson. I'm just thinking about the old days. I remember smelling something really strong and kind of pungent, and I looked down, and there was a little girl, and she had a big pickle that they were selling at the uh, concession, too. So I remember the pickle days. So in the movie theater, a lady brought a friend on one occasion. He was an adult, and he sat through the class and... Uh, countenance seemed to be fairly inviting and at the end of the class she introduced me to him and he said you know you almost did pretty good <laughs> he said uh, you had me during most of it but when you started all that talk about that hell stuff you know that's where you lost me that's where we part ways he said uh, you know if you had just ended the class before all that hell talk, 
then I probably would be coming back. But no, you know, I just, you know, and he's right. Uh, it, it's, it's dramatic. It's, 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 it's distasteful and it's, it's, it, but it's true. And so my guess is even in Peter's day, see, people just have such a difficult time, um, uh, imagining that if God is good and loving, he, he would send anyone to eternal, we don't use this word too much anymore, but it's perfectly theologically legitimate, damnation, eternal damnation. How could a good God do this? See, after all, um, we don't sin anymore. Did you know that? We just make mistakes? No, it's not our fault. It's our parents. Don't you know that? <laughs> Parents. Yeah, it's everybody's fault but mine. And um, I don't sin. I make mistakes. You know, the, so, so you increasingly hear of people of notoriety who've made mistakes. They plotted and planned a clandestine, hidden, extramarital relationship, possibly even fathering a child through it all. Uh, probably using taxpayers' money to uh, feed the habit, um, going, taking all kinds of pains to make sure nobody knows about it, and then if they find out about it, here comes the press conference. I've let a lot of people down with the mistake I made. Come on. You know, if all we do is make mistakes, I I guess it would be a little troubling to think that God would separate us eternally from him just for being mistake makers. But it's much more than that. It's really rebellion against the creator, the giver of life. It's living life in entire independence of him without making making any recourse to him. It's knowing of him and yet ignoring his ways. These are not mistakes. These are called sins for which God judges us. So it's always been a problem, this notion uh, of judgment to come. And I think it wasn't Peter's day. Hence, uh, he uh, says what he is about to say here in Second Peter. Uh, and before we get to verse 4, which is really where we will begin, can I just read for us again Second Peter, it's chapter 2, the first three verses, and those are the ones Brother Chuck took us through last week. And they're the, they set the stage for what's to follow. So just, just to refresh your memory, uh, would you look with me again, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people prior letter, 1 Peter. Peter warned the church about opposition from the outside. Here, 2 Peter, he's warning them about problems on the inside. See, false prophets among the people. Just as there will also be false, there will be false teachers. Look what it says, among you. Hey, could I tell you what your responsibility is? It's to listen real good to what you hear, here in the auditorium, anywhere, to see if it squares with what you know about the Word of God. <clears throat> if it doesn't, you've got to do something about it. You've got to take a stand. You've got to point it out. You've got to correct the teacher. Now, there's room for difference of opinion in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about serious doctrinal aberration, almost intentional designed to lead people astray. If you're beginning to see any of those tendencies in your church, you've got to stop it before it goes crazy. And who's capable of it? Anyone who teaches or preaches. I just have to tell you. So we've got to keep each other accountable. Be a good listener. Be a good listener. Now, again, I'm not talking about difference of opinion. There's room for that in a family. I'm talking about doctrinal aberration. So... Here you have false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, 
the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, so, so that's the introduction Brother Chuck gave us last week about false teachers, false prophets. And it seemed like they were operating with impunity. They were really having influence, even in local churches in Peter's day. And there's a tendency to think, God, where are you? Aren't you going to do something about this? Christians think that. And then non-Christians deny the fact that there will be judgment. So Peter's point now in the next few verses is to demonstrate this compassionate God, this long-suffering, gracious, merciful God is also a God who is so intensely holy that if his holiness is violated... It will be judged in you if it has not been judged for you in Christ. See the options? If you have not accepted the fact that your wrongdoing has been judged for you in Christ, then it will be judged in you for yourself. Distasteful though it may be, it's true. God is a wrathful God. It's a holy indignation It's not impulse. He's not flying off the handle. But he didn't give suggestions. He gave commandments. If the commandments are violated and they're not judged for you or me in Christ, then they will be judged in you on your own. And so Peter is now going to demonstrate that God has already shown already a commitment to judge wrongdoing. And he's going to offer three historical examples of it. Here's the first, verse 4. For if God, you see the word if? In the original language, it actually has the sense of since, since. When it says if, this is a literary device. It's an if-then kind of grammatical device, but the sense is since. For since God did not spare angels when they sinned. So let me ask you a question here. We guess a little bit. When is it in biblical history, uh, when is it in particular that a band of angels sinned? What do you think Peter has in mind here? Yeah, go ahead, Doug. I mean, Don. Yeah, Don, that is good. We have missed you. I mean, Don is one of the most insightful uh, students of the Bible. Anyway, glad to have you back. You're kind of like a wandering Gentile. I'm glad you showed up. I think Don uh, really hit it. And, of course, many, many, he's in good company because many people would say, yes, that's it exactly. The rebellion which took place uh, in heaven, this marvelously beautiful angel, Lucifer, who wanted to be like the Most High God and who led with him others who followed suit. An angelic host thrust to the earth, and we refer to them as demons now, reflecting their evil, uh, rebellious character. And so this is taken by many absolutely to be a reference to that. Some others point instead to Genesis 6, a tough passage of Scripture. In Genesis 6, you could read it at your leisure if you're unfamiliar, it talks about... uh, sons of God having relations with daughters of men. And some would say the sons of God are a reference to uh, fallen angels who, who, who had intimacy with the daughters of men, uh, human ladies, and produced a horrific generation of evildoers. So I, I don't know if it's that important that we know precisely which it is. I, I leaned on to, to, to your position, that ultimate rebellion. And God is saying this. If he didn't withhold his judgment on those angels when they sinned, instead he cast them into hell. By the way, does your Bible tell you what the word in the original language for hell is here? Do you have one of those Bibles maybe on the side that tells you? You know, the language we're reading here is English, but originally it came to us in Greek. So we want to make recourse to it. We get some good insights. Yeah, 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 Tartarus, absolutely. So this is not actually hell in the ultimate sense. This is not the lake of fire judgment, which we read about 
in the future in Revelation 20. Um, and it's actually a verb, not a noun. So we could read this, God tartarized the angels. He cast them in a dungeon. That's what Tartarus is. Uh, a, a, they were in, they're incarcerated. They're in a holding. They've been judged. And they await the ultimate and final judgment of God, which we read about later on in the book of, of Revelation. So if God did not withhold his judgment with regard to angels, how dare you think he will withhold his judgment with regard to false teachers and others and others who refuse his grace and mercy. Okay, so that's his first point. Are you with me so far? God has judged angels. Second illustration, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Now, when is it that God did not spare the ancient world? What is that a reference to? It's the flood. Hey, by the way, was the flood local or was it universal? Yeah, it's universal. And um, um, we can talk about that on another occasion. But I think the predominant evidence is for the universal flood, not just it took place in a little basin in the Middle East or something like that. Okay, okay. He did not spare the ancient world. You're correct. It's a reference to the flood. But preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. Who were the seven others? Yeah, wife, kids, and kids married, stuff like that, seven. And, and, and God preserved them. How did he do it? By what means did he use to save them from the flood? You remember the ark? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so if God did not spare the ancient world, he, he preserved Noah and these seven for sure, but, but he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So this is the second example that God has a commitment to judge ungodliness. First, he judged angels. Second, he judged the ancient world. And now Peter's third example next is Sodom and Gomorrah. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you've heard of them. Where, where are they located, by the way? What part of Texas is <laughs> Of course, it's East Texas. We all know that. So how many people did I offend? Anyone here from Tyler? Yay. Hey, there you go. Sorry, brother. <laughs> so where exactly is Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody know? Yeah, it's the Dead Sea area. What would you say? It is <laughs> <laughs> no comment because there's no need yeah there you go so uh dead sea area southern part of the dead sea some of you have been there uh you have not visited sodom and gomorrah because they don't exist anymore God judged Sodom and, and Gomorrah. So he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, to destruction by reducing them to ashes. How were they reduced to ashes? Fire and brimstone, remember all that? You know, if you go into that area today, you will see tons of tar pits. A little bit like if you go to Galveston. <laughs> Good day for the beach. What in the world is that? You know those... Tar balls kind of come up out of the... Yeah. Well, they're like all over the place in the Dead Sea area, and they're flammable. I don't know if this is how things were done at all, but it's not far-fetched that uh, God who commands nature, see, he is supernatural. Um, he could have ignited the tar pits with lightning centuries ago and set the whole thing ablaze. I don't know if that's the case, but it surely could have been. Charles? Yes, that's right. Keep up the good work, Brother Charles. And keep talking about those Jews. We like them Jews. <laughs> so, third example. He judged angels, he judged the ancient world, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. 
This shows that God is not a flower child God. He's not from the 70s. He's patient, compassionate, gracious, and long-suffering. But if his grace and mercy is rejected, he has a commitment to judge ungodliness and unholiness because he is a holy God. If it is not judged in Christ for you, I know I'm repeating myself, but I want to, then it'll have to be judged in you for yourself. Those are the only options because God doesn't grade on a curve. He can't be bought He gave commandments, not suggestions. Sin is a violation of his holy character. I know we make mistakes from time to time, but we don't have a mistake problem. We have a sin nature problem. We live in rebellion against a holy God. We choose to do our own thing. It's the way it is. There's something in us that drives us to it. It reveals our sin nature. That's not the problem. Jesus resolved it. The problem is rejecting the sin-bearer. That's a big problem because the problem is then the only option is to meet up with the wrath of God. Evidence of it for those naysayers who say, oh, no, there's no such thing as the wrath of God. Wait a second. Angels have already experienced it. The ancient world has already experienced it. Sodom and Gomorrah no longer exist, don't you see? But then you see this in verse 7. And if he rescued... Now, I want you to do something. I'll just read, I'll read to you verses 7 and 8. And as I read, can you count the number of times Lot is referred to as being righteous? Just, just, just hang in here. Let me read it, and you just pay attention. How many times does it associate the word righteous with this guy Lot? And if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. In two verses, how many times is the word righteous used in connection with Lot? Okay, can you help me? Okay, what does yours say? And so how is that different? The word is just as used. Okay. Oh, good. Well said. Really well said. I'm glad you brought that. What translation do you have? Yeah, it's excellent in, in this case. Usually it's not, but you... Just friends here. Buddy, do you use the King James Bible? You were there when it was written. I was there when the Dead Sea was sick. He's ready, man. Buddy, he is just unbelievable. Which goes to show you, even as you become an elderly person, you can still have a sense of humor. And so. And his hearing is good. All right, so here's the deal. I'm going to go back to your translation, which is really good, in just a second. But first, let me stay with this. Can you please describe to me what you know about Lot's behavior? What are some of the stunts he pulled? You know anything about this guy, Charlie? Say again. He wanted the best land, so he had this little deal with Abraham, you know. And he, he kind of usurped Abraham, you know, give me the best. Line. Okay. So that's not a good virtuous quality. What else? He compromised with the world pretty much that he was a righteous man. So he compromised with the world in what way? Where did he go to live? Yeah, come on, man. That's not exactly the Holy Land. What do you think, Sal? There was this little daughter thing going. I mean, this is not your loving I feel safe with my dad home line. Exactly. Take my daughters. You know, you remember that instance. It's not like this guy just sort of missed choir once in a while. This is some major bad stuff. How about the drinking thing? You think he had a drinking problem? Come on, man. He got wasted and just did stupid stuff. I mean, look, here's my thing. How in the world is he referred to? The Bible is true, right? There's no error in it. 
The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with me, with you as we read it. So I got a problem. How do I reconcile all these misbehaviors with this description of them as being just and or righteous? Yeah, go ahead, Don. Imputed righteousness. Don said God imputed righteousness, which essentially means God put it on his account. Does God have a right to do that? Yeah. Look, you broke a law of the land. You go to some court. You go to traffic court. You mean it was a moving, let's say it's a moving violation. You're, you, you went too fast in the school zone. You go to traffic court. The magistrate, the judge, whoever's doing, the decision maker says, hey, I read the case and all the rest. Uh, case dismissed. You, you know, go on your way. I have, no charges will be brought against you. I mean, you can shake your head all you want, but that person has the authority to do that kind of deal if he wants to. If the Most High God decides to pronounce a pardon upon a wrongdoer, I'm not going to argue with him. Why would he do it? Grace and mercy. So you, he did it for you, Charlie. He did it for me. And he did it for Lot. Look, look, look. Lot is privy to the covenant. He's in relationship with Abraham. He's in connection with the righteous God. He violates his status as a, as, as a member of the covenant. He lives as if he doesn't have this connection. Yet he does. And the connection was a pronouncement of justice upon him. So your translation is really good. In fact, the original language here uh, uh, actually has the sense, when you see the word righteousness, of uh, justification. Have you heard that term before? It's a legal term, justification. It's when a magistrate says you broke the law, but I'm going to respond to you just as if you didn't. Justification. If you stand justified before God, it's as if he says, it's not like your hidden sin has been hidden from me. It's not like I don't know you through and through. But I'm going to impute to you a pardon. I'm going to pronounce upon you an innocence. I'm going to look upon you just as if you had not sinned. Now this comes from the mercy and grace of God. So, when you read in the Bible the word righteousness, it could mean one of two things, since you have to be careful. Sometimes it means right standing, not right living. Justification means we have right standing with a holy God by His grace through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, who's the bridge into a new relationship with Him. Right standing means though I have a sin nature and have sinned and probably will again, I stand in the presence of Almighty God not as a sinner to be judged but as a son to be disciplined. There's a big difference between the two. Now I have right standing. Now we want right standing to generate right living. But you cannot have right standing through right living. Why not? You can never live right enough to live up to the standards of an unapproachably holy God. So he has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law by becoming in flesh. The Lord Jesus took care of all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. So our right standing with God is meant to generate our right living. Why? I do not have to live rightly to have God's favor. Did you know that? I already have God's favor by God's grace. You know what that makes me do? I really, really want to live rightly because I want to please the Father. I am not afraid of the Father. That is not a good motivation to live rightly. I don't fear the Father. That is not the right motivation. The right motivation is, I'm so grateful that you adopted me into your family, that you really did take me just as I am 
warts and all. I'm so glad that you have cast all my sin behind your back. I'm so glad as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my sin from me. I'm so glad I look to you as father and you look to me as little child. I'm so glad we're not adversaries anymore. We're in an alliance. I'm so glad because of the Prince of Peace, there's peace between us right now. I'm so grateful that I'm going to share in the inheritance that is given to me by you, Father, the inheritance which is called heaven. I'm so glad that the past is just that, it's past. I'm so glad for the present experience where I could have rich communion with you. I'm so looking forward to the future when we'll be in a face-to-face relationship. I'm so grateful that nothing can separate me from your love, which is uh, embedded in my relationship with you through Christ Jesus. I'm so glad for all of this. I want to live differently. I want to live rightly. See? See? Lot had right standing. Justification. But he was not living rightly. And you know what that did to his soul? It tormented it, as the scripture said. I'll tell you why. The worst, not the the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. No, that's going to be a miserable person in eternity. But lots of saved people are getting all the gusto out of this life they could. They're squeezing every ounce of uh, sensual gratification they could get out of it, and then it's going to end in its eternal, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, so, so, so the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. The most miserable person on earth is someone who is in a covenant with Almighty God, who has right standing and in whose heart his very spirit has been implanted, who has the mind of Christ, who has a circumcised heart, who knows better and is not living up to his or her calling, promotion, adoption. That's a miserable... You've seen that person... And so have I, and you may be that person, and so have I. We do not forfeit the right standing which is ours through faith in Christ Jesus. Never. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Read the end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, etc., etc. But you can torment your soul by being in right standing with the Most High, Most Holy God, but not living like it. It doesn't work. It's misery, sheer and utter misery. And I think I saw some hands up. I preached through it. You go ahead, Don. I just wanted to say, you know, give another example of what you're talking about in the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians. Some of the other epistles, Yes. Don is saying, if you want to see more examples of this... Uh, the consequence of living an inconsistent lifestyle. Say, f- fleshed out. He refers to First Corinthians and other epistles. Uh, see, so many of them are written, they're written to us, to Christians who are not living in light of their elevated standard, uh, st- uh, status in Christ. So, so anyway, here's the point. Um, we have three examples of God's commitment to judge. Don't pare him down to your image uh, because we 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 don't have we are not nearly as repulsed by unholiness as is an intensely holy god so 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 don't let's not dilute his holiness no he's so holy that he must take a stand he must judge he will judge sin unholiness ungodliness on the s- same hand Don't miss the fact that in the midst of all he's doing with regard to the unrighteous, he has the capacity to deliver those who have come to be in right standing with him. And you see embedded, if you look carefully, into this text we've looked at two examples of it. One is Noah and his family. And the second is righteous lot. Even in the midst of the outpouring of God's holy wrath. Do you notice how he was able to deliver these who are in covenant relationship with him? Do you notice how he's able to deliver them? The example here is of Noah and his family and then of Lot. And it all has to be taken together. I'll tell you why. 
in the original language, Greek, once again, beginning at verse 4, going through verse 9, is one sentence. There are no commas in it, and there are no periods. Only in the English translation. But what you really want to do is start at verse 4. Take a big, deep breath. You want to go, and then read through from 4 all the way to 9. And that's essentially the sense you're going to get. That's what Peter Henry says. He wants to take, take this whole thing. It's one big idea. Verses 4 to 9. Here's the idea. Don't doubt for one minute God's commitment to judge ungodliness. Don't doubt for one minute God's commitment to deliver his people from it all. And by the way, how did he deliver Lot from it all? Kicking and screaming, dear friends. He had to kind of push him, drag him out of Sodom and Gomorrah, which to me is an interesting parallel to something called the rapture. Um, in, in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I, 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 had a, I was at a funeral uh, Friday. Uh, a wonderful lady who I've known for years and whose daughters are members of this church passed to be with the Lord. And uh, in her Bible... Um, it was opened in her in her casket. She's not there anymore, uh, just the physical body, uh, to this passage in First Thessalonians 4 because it gave her hope. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Uh, and it talks about the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And then it says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain here will be caught up. That's the word for rapture. We'll be caught up together with him to meet the Lord. Where? In the air. Now, here's the deal. The rapture means to be caught up. You know why? Sadly, a lot of us whose inheritance is yet to come, whose citizenship is in heaven, have come to like this life so much. We don't want to leave it. It's the equivalent of Israel being freed from hundreds of years of enslavement in Egypt and yet wanting to go back. It's the equivalent of Israel when she was exiled to Babylon. A number of the Jews didn't want to go back. They wanted to stay in Babylon. It's the equivalent of a Christian whose citizen is in heaven, who has become so invested in life here. They're not all that excited about the rapture. So what is it? Just as God pretty much had to pull Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, the rapture means God has to grab onto us and catch us up out of this place to pull us out of it where we meet him in the air and thus forever have fellowship with him. So, so, so what happened with Lot is a wonderfully hopeful illustration of what will happen to those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Our souls are vexed. Um, we, we see corruption in the world. We see uh, horrible things. Uh, Brother Charles uh, alluded to this uh, terrible abortion uh, clinic down the road. These things um, torment our souls. We're repulsed by these things as we ought to be. We uh, have no stomach for increasing ungodliness. It ought to be this way and all the rest. And, and God will judge it all, but we will not be lost in the mix, in the shuffle. Oh, no, no. God has a way. Just as he, in the ark, delivered Noah and his family, and just as he pulled Lot out of the world, so he, at the rapture, can pull us out of the world. And... and uh his wrath will be outpoured, but not on you if you're a Christian. Uh, now, here we can differ if you want to. You're, you're entitled to your uh, r wrong opinion. I will tell you the truth. Prior to the time of the outpouring of the wrath of God, which, which we refer to as the period of tribulation, prior to it, in my humble yet accurate opinion, we're gone. So that's called the prior to the tribulation rapture or the pre-tribulational 
rapture of the church. Why do I say that? The number one truth commending that position to me is that the wrath of God will not befall his children. He's a father. Don't you get it? The father does not pour his wrath out upon his children because the father's wrath has already been poured out on the father's son on behalf of the other sons and daughters of God. Don't you see it? And I'm not anticipating receiving any more of the wrath of God because it was fully outpoured on the Lord Jesus. I don't need to add to the extent to which his excruciating death by crucifixion appeased the wrath of the Father. There's no more left with regard to us. Yes, there is the loving fatherly discipline of God when we go astray. That's a far cry from the outpouring of his wrath upon us. So when you read in the scriptures about the time of tribulation, it's upon earth dwellers, a kind of technical term for those who are making their investment here, not in there. We're not earth dwellers in that sense. I'll tell you what we are. To use a military term we used to use when I was in the, uh, in the army, this is TDY, folks. This is temporary duty. PCS is permanent change of station, you know. That's the rapture. We get our PCS orders at the rapture. Don't get so comfortable around here. This is just TDY passing. So we're not an earth dweller in the sense this is where we're digging in because we're going to be here forever. No, we're not. We're not going to be here forever. So therefore, this is a, uh, a very striking passage in two ways. Don't worry. God will straighten out what's crooked. He has a commitment to judge evil. He, he has given us evidence. And don't worry. When that happens, you'll be okay. You'll be saved from the wrath of God to come. Why? Because the ark of protection for you has been your faith, your confidence placed in the shed blood, in the bleeding of the Holy Son of God. That's the penalty paid for our, not mistakes, for our rebellion, our iniquity, our transgression against God. You know what I'm finding as I get older? I really, really, really am gladder and gladder and gladder that I am a Christian. You get older and you start losing your hold on more and more stuff. Uh, hair or the color thereof. <laughs> Back pains, joints. I mean, you discover body parts you didn't know you had. Oh, that thing hurts. Oh, that's what that's called, a sciatic nerve. Well, I didn't know. Thank you, doctor, for charging me $100 million to tell me. That's what that thing is. I know you can't help me, but now I know what hurts. Okay, good. So <laughs> I mean, you start losing hold on all this kind of a stuff. So I, I just developed an even greater appreciation for the fact I'm being held onto by a God who is a consuming fire. Listen, it was a judgment of fire that befell Sodom and Gomorrah and it was a judgment of water that befell the ancient world. But he has a way of bringing me, you, through the waters and through the fire because the sun has already been judged on our behalf. That just makes me so glad to be a redeemed, ransomed, rescued one all by the grace of God. And even at times when I'm not living righteously, there's no excuse for it. Please don't misunderstand. And there are consequences for it. But it will never separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because I have right standing based upon his grace and mercy. That's good, huh? It's not just going to church, is it? It's, by, it, it's being embraced in the loving, gentle arms of a God who's so powerful. Boom! There's the universal flood. Boom! There's fire and brimstone. Boom! There's an ark by which you can keep your head above the water. And the ark is the Lord Jesus. Charlie, you had your hand up for quite some time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. She did. 
It's always the women who mess things up. Don't you think, Charlie? Always. Thank you. By the way, we had Mrs. Lott in the first class. Are, here. Are you? Yeah, you're a daughter. Your mom was in the first class. And your uncle was here from Kansas City or something like that. And someone said, you should have asked Dorothy Lott about your question about Lott because she would have known about that. Yes, Sal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Sally, in case you didn't hear, is saying uh, regard to the abortion clinic that our um, emphasis should be on. Um, sensitivity towards the ladies seeking abortion. They do so because they're lost, they don't know better, they're apart from God, and they need to see not our condemnation, uh, but our, or the concept is to be condemned, condemned but not the, not the person is what you're saying. That's a good word, Sally. Yeah, it comes through. Hey, by the way, since you're monopolizing the conversation, Sal, <laughs> did you want to say something about, I know uh, you guys are... are are you f oh, okay. We're having Journey Weekend. Thanks for listening on our private conversation. Uh, those folks over there are going to host eighth grade girls, I think. What is wrong with you people? Uh, during the Journey Weekend we're having, and we thought there was a need for more f food, but it looks like there's plenty. Oh, okay. <laughs> what are friends for? Yeah, it's unlisted. Thank you. <laughs> Call Brother John. Yes, sir. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Pretty hard. Let me repeat to you, and we will, uh, I'll make this brief, and then we'll go from it. That's such a good question. If I can sum up and tell me if I got this right. What about those people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Are they going to hell too? That's, that's a really rough one. Okay. Let me refer you to Romans chapter 1. It's really a wonderful passage for you. And in it, it speaks of something called general revelation. Why general revelation? Because it's God revealing himself generally. To everyone. And he does so in two ways. You'll see it in Romans 1. It's wonderful. Inside, that's called conscience. Outside, that's called creation. What do we mean conscience? Look at Anyone who steals know they're doing wrong, even without the Ten Commandments. How do I know that? Nobody steals in public. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nobody sends out an email. Hey, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm stealing your car later today. I mean, they do it on the slide because they know it's wrong. That is a reflection of a creator who has a moral character, conscience. Second, creation. I don't care how removed you are from the church and from other Christians. You can be in the remotest place on earth and you look up into the sky and you've got to be overwhelmed by it. And you have to start thinking, who did this? And so Romans says, instead of honoring and thanking God, though they may not know his name, it said they grew foolish in their speculations. So they see the evidence of God in creation and instead worship creatures. I'll worship the lake instead of the maker of the lake. I'll worship the mountain. I'll worship the deer. I'll make a totem pole. And then it says God gave them over. 
Okay, he says. If you want to ignore the evidence of me in conscience and creation, I'll let you do your own thing. Now, here's what happens in my opinion. If you respond rightly to God's revelation of a general kind, conscience and creation, he'll give you more information. And then you'll get special revelation. What's that? Well, primarily the scriptures. Why special? Because it's, it's, it, not everyone has it, sadly. I mean, we're doing all kinds of great translation work, but still there are people, groups in the world today who don't have access to the Bible in their own language. But even if those people respond rightly to what God has given, it will beget more revelation. Have you ever heard these marvelous stories? Someone from... Uh, from uh, Pearland, Texas, who goes to Sagemont Church, gets this burden to go on the next missions trip to, to Thailand. Uh, and they go to Thailand, and while there, they get a chance to share uh, good news about Jesus to someone, and that person says, ah, that's his name. I've been wondering. See, that's a person whose heart has been opened to God in general revelation, and God fed the hunger by moving someone over there from Pearland, Texas, uh, to tell that person specifically, yeah, the God who made those clouds, the God who's speaking to your heart, who's defining right and wrong, I'll tell you what he did. He came. His name is Jesus. So that's, in my opinion, how that, how that happens. So it's not that God arbitrarily says... Uh, you didn't have access to me. I'm judging you on that basis. No. No. He gives revelation to all people, and our response to revelation begets more revelation. Okay, that was a good question. Well, we better end right here, right? Because uh, I could tell it's time. And, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the end of things that you have already told us. You who see the end from the beginning. It's not that we welcome uh, your judgment upon folks. We would rather have folks uh, allow you to judge their sin in Christ Jesus. And so that's our job, isn't it? To try to be attractive enough so that they would be jealous of what we have, peace with you. Uh, but we thank you, O oh God, and praise you for your uh, undiminished, undiluted holiness. It's the way you are. We're glad you are. Makes you a great dad. You value what's good and right, perfect and pure, incorruptible. Thank you so much for making us to be more and more like that through a process of sanctification to be culminated one day in our own glorification during which time the very presence of sin will be removed. In other words, we're excited, Lord Jesus, about the future. Thank you for doing all things well. Thank you for being the perfect balance, O oh God, between judgment and pardon and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I pray your death on a cross would not be in vain uh, with regard to the lives of anyone represented here today, but that they would see the need, oh, the desperate need, to accept your offer of forgiveness through your sacrifice. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, any psalms you're interested in, let us know. We may do it.